Hi. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to mention two things real quick. First, this is a long show, and you don't gotta be a hero. There are natural breakpoints, so, you know, stop when you need to stop, drink some water, and pick it back up when you're ready. Second, Hail Mary Digital is an independently produced podcast, right? Like, I'm not on a fancy podcast network, and the show isn't ad-supported or anything like that. Now, I'm not looking for support, but if you do enjoy the program, I'd ask that you consider leaving a donation with the Sandy Ground Historical Society. Sandy Ground, which is located right here on the south shore of Staten Island, is the oldest continuously inhabited free black settlement in the United States and was a station along the Underground Railroad. The Historical Society offers workshops to students across New York City, and they even maintain a museum here in the community. Every dollar helps them continue their work of telling their story. If you're interested, there's information in the show notes and on my website. Anyway, here we go. There's only so much that, you know, we should be saying from our comfy homes in the South Shore set up, yeah. right? Yeah. And like we talked about this a while ago where I am also saddened by like, yeah, like there is a whole half island of people that I just never met and got to know because of this and that is sad too yeah so it's absolutely time and for me I would love to just be able to talk to the kids on the North Shore more (laughs) and like have more of like that um more facilitation you know less of the gap and I would love to have that and be part of that The southernmost town in all of New York City, and therefore the southernmost town in New York State, is my hometown, Tottenville, on Staten Island. And at the southernmost point of Tottenville is a big red pole, a south pole. And wouldn't you know it, but among my neighbors are those that contend that the pole is in the wrong spot, that it's not located at the most perfectly southern point it possibly could be. Like, of course this is a thing. The height of drama in this small town. And then here's me. Discount Euripides. There but to dramatize the squabble for all the ages. Whatever. This is part of what gives us our charm, I guess. In any case, these people are wrong. The pole is exactly where it's supposed to be. But, like, I also sort of get it. For one thing, there's this. Most Staten Islanders, or I guess at least most of us here on the South Shore, use one main road to orient ourselves, Highland Boulevard. Running up the Eastern Shore, Highland Boulevard spans the length of the whole island, top to bottom, north to south. Anything near the street is either below the boulevard, meaning to the east towards the water, or above the boulevard, to the west. So if you're driving down Highland Boulevard and you pass Page Avenue and crossing into Tottenville, and you keep going and going, eventually you'll hit the end, which is the quad at the Conference House Park. If you decide to break any number of local ordinances and keep driving straight and over the quad and past the Conference House itself, you'll hit a pavilion hanging over the shoreline beach. And it's there, right beyond the pavilion, where there's a few feet of sand depending on the tides, and it's here at this place that 
precious bit of square footage that some choose to believe is the point of southernmost southernness, I suppose. A most fitting place for a pole. I disagree. Mostly due to the fact that Staten Island isn't aligned north to south. When you drive down Highland Boulevard, you're not skirting along some perfectly parallel longitudinal geodesic. Why not? Well, because not unlike its citizens, the whole of Staten Island is slightly crooked. The thing is just cocked to the side at some angle. In fact, the whole of New York City is tilted so. Like, are you ready for this? This Statue of Liberty is actually west of Hoboken, and there are, I kid you not, parts of the Upper East Side that are west of the Upper West Side. You don't believe me? <laughs> Mumphy, go look at a map. In any case, the pole is not there. It's where it is. But wait, there's more. You didn't think that that was the only point of contention for where a pole dedicated to one specific position ought to be, did you? If you wind through the gravel paths of the Conference House Park and stumble upon the humble pole patch, you'll see that there's just a smidge of a ridge right behind it. And I mean, like, right there. You pass over this ridge and immediately you're back on the beach, the same one that connects to the shoreline underneath the pavilion and the other proposed pole position. I've heard people argue that it, the pole, should be out there instead, just beyond the ridge. My thing is, if the pole was placed anywhere over the ridge, it'd be partially submerged half the time, wouldn't it? And thus no longer marking the southernmost point. I mean, perhaps, perhaps, if the pole was the ten feet or so out further from where it is, such that it's at atop the ridge, but still before the waterline, that that would be unequivocally the most southern point of southern points. But whatever, I'm mostly content where it sits currently where the gray pebbles of the park path cease and the sand begins, beyond which there is, officially, no more New York City, no more Staten Island, no more Tottenville. Like I said, though, I will concede, I will admit, that even though I trust the location of the pole to be correct and I don't want to see it moved or anything like that, the more general location of the pole doesn't, I don't know, feel particularly south to me. And fear not, I do in fact realize how dumb that sounds, but nonetheless, that's how I can get down in the dirt with everyone else and know exactly where it is they're coming from. Like I said, I get it. I really do. I'm a supremely meticulous and orderly person living in an ever-changing, randomly generated universe. I know this about myself and the world, so I can keep my gut instincts in check. As satisfying as it would be, I know it would be totally unreasonable to ask for and expect that any island might come to a nice, tidy, pointy point right at its southern tip. Like, if only wishing made it so, but my island is no exception. Here's the thing of the thing, however. The reason the gist of the area doesn't feel south is because if you're looking... Well, if you're looking to the quote-unquote south, out and over the Raritan Bay into New Jersey, there looks to be this sharp bend up the eastern coastline. And naturally, as if just to complicate everything and leave me perpetually distressed, the beaches over there do seem to come to a nice, tidy, pointy point. But, you know, just over there, not here, where it's actually south. The virtue of this jut existing makes it feel, to me, like the island extends a little bit 
downwards. The island is heading south, but not where it's supposed to. How could this happen? Who said this was okay? Look, I know I might sound like I'm losing my composure. I'm not. In as much as I can, I've made my peace, which admittedly is not that much, but still. Because I know I can check the compass on my phone to confirm that south is south, and I know that whomever it was that decided, for reasons passing understanding, that we needed a south pole in the first place must have done their homework, which was aided, I'm sure, with the precision of global positioning satellites, to make sure that everything was in its right place, and I know there'd be no reason, or at least no good reason, to conduct a high-scale conspiracy to put a pole marking a place in a place other than the place it was supposed to mark. And so the only thing standing in opposition to all that is me. Me and my bubbling urge over this mere simulacrum. How is it that this, of all things, I can just let go like this? Staten Island is an island, and it's big, and my tiny human body is tiny. Tricks of perspective will cause discrepancies, but like... All you gotta do is zoom out far enough and all these geographic irregularities vanish into nothing, right? What might look like a big corner when you're standing a little bit away on a particular ridge isn't even that noticeable on a map unless you're looking for it. And why stop there? Like, if I stand at the South Pole, then yes, I am south of the rest of New York City. But I'm yet still someone else's north, in this case, Perth Amboy. And the people in Jersey are someone else's north, and so on and so on. Travel enough leagues and you'll reach Antarctica, the southern continent that the one true king of South Poles calls home. My point is, that any given spot is apparently up for debate is, I don't know, it's fine. You know, it might be something that at first pass one might assume to be this empirically decided thing, but this isn't a big deal. I'm okay with this. I might even go as far to say that it's not something to be celebrated, surely, but I find it reassuring. Why? Well, for one thing, and I don't want to get into the weeds of like, what is truth or anything like that, but we have a lot of different systems for determining where stuff is. Consider, for instance, that this whole time I've been referring to geographical directions. True north and south, as it were. We pretend that Earth is static, but we're both hurling around a sun and spinning. And even the axis of our spin is at an angle. And even that isn't consistently stable. It wobbles due to something called the Chandler Wobble. Thank you, Seth Carlo Chandler, for that one. Couple that with the fact that our solar system is moving and the entire Milky Way galaxy is set to collide with Andromeda and the entire fucking universe is expanding. And I'm actually starting to think that there's a solid case to be made that nothing is where we think it is. We pretend that none of that stuff is going on when we talk about direction because on our scale, None of it matters. If we were in space living like cosmonauts, we need to use something else to orient ourselves. Something like the geomagnetic poles, which are different from their famous cousins, the pure magnetic poles. Now I know what you're probably thinking, that you're not gonna fall for another one of my tricks. This is episode three of three, so by now you've got me all figured out, huh? Look out, everyone. Here comes one of Brian's infamous tangents that he'll relate back to, you know, other stuff by just the thinnest threads imaginable, right? The last string of string cheese, then. 
You're probably saying that the only reason I've introduced the magnetic and geomagnetic poles is because I want to talk about some unimportant nonsense I found out while I was doing my research and thought it was interesting and wanted to shoehorn it in by any means possible. Is that it? Huh? Huh? Look, you're half right. I was going to talk about something anyway, and I saw my way to bring it up while I was doing my research. But because I pictured that you were snarky about it just now, I'm not going to tell you what it is or when we'll come back to it. Congratulations. You've played yourself. Anyway, it has to do with the difference between the magnetic and geomagnetic poles. See, the magnetic poles aren't lined with the geomagnetic poles. In fact, the magnetic poles move because we've got like a lot of these molten metal eddies flowing through the earth. And where you've got flowing metal, you've got electric currents. And where you've got electric currents, you've induced a magnetic field. All of them add up and boom, poles, baby, we got them. But the Earth is moving and spinning and wobbling, so the poles are doing their own little shuffle and even flip occasionally. What's interesting, at least to me, is that this means that the magnetic north and south poles are not always antipodal, directly opposite from one another. In this case, it means that if you were to draw a line through the Earth connecting the north and south magnetic poles, it wouldn't pass through the center, or the planet's core. And this isn't a huge problem when we want to go on a hike and bring our compass along. But again, if you're some astronaut surfing the heavens, it might. They've got equipment and stuff and who knows? <laughs> I'm sure somebody at NASA does. Cue then the geomagnetic poles. The reason we've been able to figure out a lot of physics over the years is because physicists realize that you can get most of the way through whatever you're trying to do if you simplify things and don't try and worry about every little detail. In this instance, why try to calculate all the unfathomably complex interactions of all these eddies flowing through a moving, spinning, wobbling planet when you can just pretend that there's one big bar magnet in the middle of the Earth that everything averages out to anyway? In the immortal words of the Block Bleister employees, What was my point with all this? Where was I going? Oh yeah. Different contexts call for different solutions. And more than one thing can be true at a time. Maybe on Staten Island, the most southern point of southernness should be at the bottom of Highland Boulevard. Because maybe that's what's right and true for Staten Island. Lord knows I'm not in a position, pun absolutely intended, to determine the validity of something like that, even if I would reject it in the strongest possible terms. But that's exactly it. That we all have unique feelings about something so granular as to where a pole ought to be is okay. Because we're all bringing something different to the discussion. A diversity of ideas. A plurality of experiences. Furthermore, when it comes to the broader, more fundamental questions, we all seem to agree. Case in point, there isn't anybody in town that I've talked to about this, from my staunchest allies to my fiercest detractors to the overwhelming majority who for sure do not give a damn, that doesn't agree that Tottenville as a whole isn't the southernmost town in New York City. On that, at least, we can all agree. Right? Right? I'm pink. Hit it. You're listening to Hail Mary Digital. The big finale. At least I don't got to talk about a time I got physically clobbered. I got that going for me. Episode three. 
the perfect rebel or the end. Where to even start? Look, Staten Island is the least populous of the city's five boroughs, but we've still got almost one and a half times the population of Iceland, and they're a whole ass country. So really, I shouldn't be surprised that there is at least one person here that is potentially a member of the Flat Earth Society. And this isn't just some arbitrary conjecture that I've cooked up, by the way. This isn't me just figuring a thing based on the law of large numbers. I have proof. See, for years now, years, someone has been pasting their Flat Earth stickers on the South Pole. This is something I'm extremely conflicted about. I mean, on the one hand, I'm a high school physics teacher, and that there are Flat Earthers out there that genuinely buy into this collective delusion makes me crazy. I admit, I don't know too much about what they actually subscribe to outside of what I've picked up through cultural osmosis. Things like, they think the Earth is a disk, and the Sun is a spotlight, and that Antarctica is less a place and more a wall of ice, and that gravity, precious gravity, is, I don't know, a hoax? What kills me is that flat Earther-ism isn't, like, hard to debunk. At all. You could, for instance, view one of NASA's many photos showing our home to be, you know, the gigantic fucking sphere that it is. You could, maybe, look at a ship, say a cruise liner, sailing for the horizon and notice that the bottom disappears first. They're not sailing off an edge, of course, they just become harder to see as they go around the sphere. The angle of their position compared to your viewing location dips until, eventually, you just can't see them anymore. We should have a name for that exact moment. Maybe we do, but if we don't, perhaps we could call it something like, say, mm, the Parallax Collapse. The most intuitive way for Mr. Buchanan, the physics teacher, to reconcile the fact that I reside on a spherical planet is like this. Wherever I am in the world, I've got the entire Earth pulling down on me. At least, if we're keeping things Newtonian. I could be at the North Pole, or the South Pole, or Tottenville, and it doesn't matter. The same amount of Earth will be under my feet at each location. And because of that, gravity is pulling down on me with the same amount of force and in the same direction. Straight down. Just like how physicists use the geomagnetic poles as an aggregate of Earth's magnetic fields to simplify what's going on with all that, we can do the same thing with Earth's mass. This is to say, I'm being pulled by gravity to Earth's center of mass, which, due to the nature of a sphere, would be a point at the middle of Earth's core. And again, this holds true no matter where you are on the planet. Everyone is being pulled straight down everywhere. But we wouldn't observe the same phenomenon on a disk. The center of mass would be the center of the disk, and as you moved further and further away from that center, you'd no longer have the same distribution of mass beneath you. Put another way, you wouldn't feel a pull down so much as you would feel a pull towards the center of the disk. Of course, flat earth people have an answer for all of this. A bogus answer to be sure, but an answer all the same. Because really, it's not about being right or wrong, is it? Like, for some of them, I think it's all a joke. For most of them, though, I'm sure it's just that classic case of their collective delusion supplying shelter and community. I mean, who doesn't like being in the know? Who wouldn't want to have some hidden Gnostic knowledge? 
That's all bad, obviously. And the source of my confliction. Because the act of putting a flat earth sticker on some pole seems to me to be the perfect act of rebellion. And whomever is doing it is, therefore, the perfect rebel. And I get that it is, at best, unwise to try and separate the act with the message, possibly an impossible task, and it is, at worst, outright dangerous to conflate nonsense with nobility. But hear me out. Take, for instance, the persistence. As I mentioned, this has been going on reliably for years. A sticker goes up, eventually it gets removed, and sure enough, another appears to replace it. Consider, too, how easy an act of rebellion this is. It takes almost no effort to put a sticker on something. You can't say the same thing about trying to remove it, though. And this feels like one of those cases where the medium is the message in that, like, of course, when I see it, what else do I want to do but yank it off in one swift tug? But it never works out that way. You go to scratch and peel and scratch and peel some more and you never really get all of it. And even if you do, there's always that gluey residue that, well, <laughs> sticks around. And then after all that, boom, another one goes up. Lickety split, Johnny on the spot. And what are you supposed to do if you catch this low-grade act of vandalism in the act? Call the park rangers? Hi, uh, yeah, somebody's putting a sticker on the South Pole. Like, what the fuck are they supposed to do about it? And be real, are you going to tell someone to stop putting up a sticker? All it takes to exact this defiance is a single, solitary quanta of energy above doing nothing at all. That's what makes it infuriating. And that, in turn, is what makes it brilliant. Nobody's getting hurt, right? Like, this isn't so much a rage against the machine, but a howl at the moon. So it doesn't even matter if this is the work of a true believer or some trolling contrarian, a public disruption or performance art. In an instant, the South Pole, this entire monument to direction, is nullified. The work of a perfect rubble. I was just talking to somebody about this. Okay, not just talking to someone, because this is September when I'm writing this and I haven't seen anyone since before quarantine started. And let's be honest, despite never being more rich than when in their company, I don't see my friends often enough anyhow. But not too long ago, I was talking to someone about this. I can't remember whom it was exactly, but I've narrowed it down. I mean, I've only got so many friends that'll indulge my bullshit, but I think it could have been either Nikki, Danny, or Alex. So I call them and ask them in that order. Can you hear Ooh. me? Yes. Yay! <laughs> this is going to sound so strange. <laughs> I have nothing left from you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So you know uh, the conference house park. Yeah. Right? Do you know about the South Pole at the conference house park? I don't think so. Not off the top of my the, head. The red pole at the, <laughs> the technically the southernmost point of the island. I've probably been there, but I don't recall it specifically. So you wouldn't also remember that somebody is leaving flat earth stickers on it all the time? No. (laughs) Okay. That's good. (laughs) What are the qualities of a good rebel, do you think? I think first and foremost, if you're going to be a rebel is like, you, you need to be able to stand by what you're saying and do so with conviction. Like, I don't have the balls to, to argue with people. 
So I think first and foremost, if you're going to rebel against something, you have to have the ability to back it up mm. confidently. You need to like know your enemy. Right. Yeah. And in rebellion, you could know your enemy and you could have all the right answers and you could explain it all really easily. But when faced with confrontation, if you're not prepared for that confrontation, then you're shit out of luck. Like, I think that more so than anything to be rebellious, you need to be able to be confrontational. What is the most rebellious thing you've ever done? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not a very rebellious person. I, I, I tend to be a very rule rule guy but <laughs> um, when I was in high school at some point I was cutting class and I was I got really high and then I was I was like nearby the school and there's like these benches that are like underneath this awning that you can go and sit on but nobody ever goes and sits on them mm. so I was like I'm gonna go sit on these benches that nobody sits on for no reason like there's no sign that says you can't sit there there's no mm. reason that nobody sits there but nobody sits there so I sat there and then I got detention. So <laughs> <laughs> why? Because I was cutting class <laughs> and decided that staying on school property was a good idea. I didn't go to the detention, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I like that uh, when given the chance, you just doubled down on your rebellion. You were going to go somewhere you weren't supposed to go. And then when they told you you were supposed to go somewhere, you said, no, I'm not going to go. There. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very poetic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it wasn't Nikki. Okay, no problem. Perhaps Danny. Hello. Hello, my friend. How are you? Good. What's going on? You know the Conference House Park. Yes. Do you know about the South Pole? Yes, we've been there together. Yeah, we, we yeah we've hung out many times there. Do you know who it is that keeps putting up a flat Earth sticker on it? No. Oh, man. All right. That's no. strike two. <laughs> I only have one person left. <laughs> Let me ask a more broad question. What do you think makes a good rebel? Um, someone who does what they want, but doesn't do it in order to harm other people. So they, even if they know that there is judgment being passed, or even if there is, it's not what's expected or not what is supposed to be done, they kind of just do their own thing anyway, just because it is in their interest, um, but they don't do it, and they try to actively not hurt other people in the process of it. Mm -hmm. So it's not doing something to screw everyone, but it's doing something because it's like, it doesn't really hurt anyone, it gives you a little thrill in the moment. <laughs> so the, so conviction, they, they have to have conviction. Yeah, there has to be conviction. And some sort of uh, sense of justice and good, I think, has to be in a rebel. If what you're doing, it's like a prank. Like when you look at a good prank, I remember seeing something on TV when I was probably like 14 and it was like the 40 greatest pranks on VH1. <laughs> one when a bunch of shirtless men went into Abercrombie & Fitch because they always had the shirtless models. But it was a bunch of random dudes. So there were like bellies, hairy chest, little guys, tall guys that didn't fit the Abercrombie model. And it was just a prank. They all went into the store in Times Square, I think, and were shirtless for the day and like didn't harm anyone. A lot of people got a kick out of it, and uh, they kind of just did it to do it. Like, I don't know. So I think a good prank and being a rebel kind of go hand in hand. What is the most rebellious thing you've ever done? Oh, God. So there was a local band when I was 14 that put stickers all over Staten Island, and I used to peel them off and steal <laughs> them. Can, can you tell me what band it was? I'll bleep you out. Oh, uh, it was pretty 
<laughs> That's perfect. They, uh, they stickered my whole neighborhood because uh, someone lived in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, they were, every time I would walk to go to like the deli or walks around the neighborhood, they were like <laughs> on, post on like a guardrail. Right. They were on the, and I peeled a lot of them off and I probably still have a lot of them. They were up in my high school. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for the symmetry of, I have an example of somebody putting up stickers and you (laughs) have an active rebellion filling them down. All right. Well, at this point, I was definitely feeling a bit nervous. If it wasn't Nikki I talked to or Danny, it had to have been Alex, right? Hello now. Hi. Hi. I know I I kept you in the dark. Um, So this is why I'm talking to you. I... There's this thing that I've talked to somebody about, and I forgot exactly who it was that I talked to, um, but I've been able to narrow it down to three people. And I've already talked to the two other people, and I have not talked to them about it. Um, So if it's not you, I'm screwed. (laughs) Let me know if any of this rings a bell. Sure. Um, You know the Conference House Park, right? Yeah. You know the South Pole at the Conference House Park? Of course. And you know that there is somebody that leaves flat earth stickers. <laughs> yeah. It was you I talked to? Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was like, I don't know who else this could have been. Yeah, it was me. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just like, it's just so funny because like, I was like, oh my God, what is this going to be about? Like, there's like so many, th- <laughs> this is like how you started off. Okay. <laughs> can, can you talk to me in a, in a broader sense about that? Because here's the thing for me. I feel like whoever that is, whoever it is that does this, like, and I, I don't know them and I obviously don't believe and advocate for what they believe, but whoever this person is, like, this feels like the perfect act of rebellion to me. Because, like, think about it. The South Pole is a monument to direction. Mm-hmm. And all this person has to do to defile it is put up a sticker. It's perfect. It's just, like, the greatest, most insignificant screw you done in, in, in the most... For sure, for sure. And I could especially, especially, um, I guess, from a detached observant point, kind of, and, like, the fact that you don't know who it is doing it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see why you would think all of these things. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think makes a good rebel? Oh, my God. <laughs> Question authority. No. <laughs> Yeah, I guess what a timely question, right? In a way, it's like going against whatever the expectation is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there. There are different forms of rebellion, and they're not all appropriate. They're, I mean, they're not supposed to be appropriate, but they're not. I don't know what I'm trying to say. This is so hard. This is so hard. You know what? I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at that. That it's going against expectation. How do you think we're able to tell the difference between what we see as worthy rebellion and unworthy rebellion? You know, because like we, you know, we watch Star Wars, nobody roots for the Death Star. I think like you have to be honest with yourself about what you're fighting for. And if you are fighting for something ego based, 
might be an issue, especially when it is directly in conflict with people who are fighting for their lives. I think you have to really be honest with yourself and look at and look at why it is you're fighting for what you're fighting for. And I think that a lot of people can't be honest with themselves. And maybe that's where they should start. <laughs> Are you comfortable sharing the, the most rebellious thing you've ever done? Off the top of the dome, I really have never done anything all that rebellious. I really haven't. And that might be a good thing because that might be like self-preservation and me just trying to keep myself from getting into trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it might actually be something that like I'll think about and then later on maybe I'll, I can come up with something and tell you. But mm-hmm. um, maybe I'm protecting myself. So that's that, I guess. Case closed. Mystery solved. Just for good measure, I also talked to Casper, of course, about the role of rebels within a community. Well, one of the things to look for if a community is healthy is how is space made for conflict? Because if you walk into a community and everyone agrees with each other, you should have alarm bells going off, (laughs) right? Right. Because first of all, it's not true. Um, (laughs) We're human beings and we're going to have different opinions. And, you know, the quality of disagreement, how we engage with one another to disagree is such a sign of the health of a community. Because if there isn't any, it's a cult. It really is a cult. And so, you know, one of the principles of science is to have a hypothesis to test it out. Uh, and, and to test it over and over again, right? And, right. Until we can find a consensus. Um, and so to some extent, I'm not too worried about people who, from a climate context, say, listen, I'm not sure about your predictions about this data, or I'm not, like this, this data doesn't seem to connect with, with the general theory of global climate change and catastrophe. What I care about is when that fringe opinion is mm-hmm. funded and positioned right. into the media and distorted to such an extent that you have a political movement that builds around this perhaps genuine question from a scientific perspective, which then launches a whole industry of fake science because yeah. they know they can get funded doing it. That's, that's when it's a problem. So if you think about a community, like it should have space for disagreement. Now, I, I, <laughs> I don't know what's motivating this sticker guy. Um, my <laughs> sense is that it might not be purely about the articulation of not believing in the right. world as a yeah. globe. Uh, it might be a sense of wanting to interrupt public space in some way or yeah. to be noticed or to, right? There's, there's all sorts of other reasons why, why people disagree. But I think ultimately in a community, you need some space for pushback. One of the ways that you can see this when you bring people together is if you get, you know, 10, 15 people in a circle and one by one people share something broadly along the same lines, usually by person eight or nine, there's such a discomfort with the, sa- the sameness. Yeah. That people, that any, like, and sometimes it's me. And if I'm not there, it's going to be someone else, right? right? Someone will just be like, yeah, but what about? And, and I don't agree because, um, and so, I think that the the invitation to each of us is like, am I always just playing the rebel because it, that somehow feeds my identity? Mm-hmm. Uh, or am I always just agreeing? Right, uh, right. right. Like th- there's actually some health to have. Uh, it's, it's healthy for a community to have some level of, of uh, discussion and disagreement. But it's, yeah, again, it's about how we do it that I'm really uh, passionate about. I have one more question for you. I've been asking everybody and feel free to answer or not, but yeah. uh, are you willing to share what is the most rebellious thing you've ever done? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I went to a very 
a kind of academically oriented secondary school. I was a boarding student there and I fit in, you know, I came out and, but still kind of, you know, did my, I, I was not disruptive, let me put right, it this right. way, but I had this deep, bitter anger about the experience of being there. I felt that the school was hypocritical. It was very rich in some ways. I remember being outraged about the amount of money that the head teacher spent to redecorate their, their office. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I was really, I was, I was outraged. And I've been reading Naomi Klein's No Logo, this great kind of political awakening book in, in my teenage years. And so I created a sort of burn book equivalent, if you've ever seen the movie Mean Girls, um, <laughs> in which uh, <laughs> Regina George puts all sorts of, you know, secrets and rumors about right. people <laughs> and then like distributes it across the school. And that's what I did oh on my, my final <laughs> day of a year. And I remember asking my mother that morning, you know, should I do this? And she just said, you do whatever you need to do. And I remember that experience as being so, it, it was extremely rebellious and I was banned from campus. I was not allowed to come oh to the gosh. prom. You know, I was all, all sorts of things kind of immediately happened. And I remember the teacher's confusion at me because I'd been this kind of goody two shoes figure. Yeah. And it felt good because I wanted people to see that I was angry. Right, <laughs> right. A better view of me. And the thing that I learned was that the only people who kind of were curious about what I'd done and why and were supportive, even though they disagreed with what I'd done, were the friends that I'd, I'd had when I was 13, yeah. um, who I'd kind of, you know, had fallen by the wayside to some extent, right. but that they cared about me enough to, to be curious. And so I, I learned something about, you know, when you are rebellious, you will lose friends uh, yeah. and you will lose influence. But that the friends who, who really stood by me, I, I, I'll be appreciative for. <laughs> and, and I also learned that that was not the most effective way to communicate my, my displeasure, you know? So I, I learned a lot from it. <laughs> no, I, I thank you for sharing that. And really, I just want to say, Casper has been a real trooper putting up with me and my terrible interview skills. They say don't meet your heroes, but Casper is the exception. Also, again, go buy his book, The Power of Ritual. I really loved it. I feel like it's only fair to share what I think my most rebellious act ever was, considering my friends were all willing to share. Anyway, it goes like this. Actually, I suppose I should preface it by saying it was a prank, sort of in line with what Danny was saying. In this quest to define what it means to be a rebel and a good rebel at that, I agree with her. I think being a harmless prankster is a qualifying quantity. And I wasn't one of those it's just a prank bro dudes, but you know, it was the kind of prank that is rooted in whimsy and fizz. I also want to say that I don't pull many pranks. In fact, I think this might have been the one and only I've ever pulled, which <laughs> made it all the more unexpected and therefore effective. But yeah, now that that's all out of the way, what the hell was it? Okay, so you know in episode one how I was gushing over how much I love writing and sending notes? Well, I got to do that in a big way thanks to my first ever real job working in a warehouse for an online guitar store. As a music person, that was maybe the sickest job ever. You know, outside of being an actual musician. But I got to handle these thousand dollar guitars and pack them up and mail them out to legit rock stars. I had this job for a few months, but at some point, management decided to move the warehouse operations from Jersey down to one of the Carolinas. I forget which one. 
So we had to pack up all our stock onto two 18-wheelers and clean out our zone in the warehouse, which we shared with some hilarious carpet distributors, these mastermind prank gods in their own right. But anyway, that meant that anything not in our inventory was going to get shocked, and one of those items was a stack of company postcards. I asked my bosses if I could just have them, and they for sure did not give a damn, so the postcards went home with me that day. What I decided to do with them was write little letters to all my friends, especially the ones that I didn't get to see too often anymore because they moved far away or we drifted apart or whatever. I'd give them a good word to use that day, like lucubration, noun, to burn the midnight oil. Also, of a piece of writing, typically pedantic or over-elaborate. I'd give them whatever song was my current jam, and I'd sign off saying, Later, stranger. To let everyone know that they should be expecting something in the mail, I'd make a little post on social media. Nothing too crazy, just a heads up that everyone got tagged in. On November 8th, 2015, I sent out whatever the next batch of 30 or so postcards was and made my innocuous posts online. And waited. See, with this batch, I kept everything mostly the same. I gave everyone a word to try out and whatever song I was jamming on at the time and signed off with my sign-off. But what was different about these notes is that, well, they weren't notes at all. When everyone started receiving their postcards, the message within contained but a letter and a number. Days went by, but I knew soon enough, someone would crack and ask what the fuck was going on. I forgot who the first person to start everything off was, possibly my buddy Jonathan, who got the nickname J-Bones when we played football in high school, because remember I played football? So J-Bones starts asking everyone on my post what was happening, just as I intended. Everyone was gripped with anticipation. Did your postcard come in yet? Yes or no? Could you post your letter? Oh, I apologize. Could you also post the number so we know where it goes in Brian's message? After two or three days, there were just enough letters and number combinations to start trying out different phrases, but not enough to actually get it. Maybe, I don't know, five days in, my friend Shauna, who succeeded me as band leader of Band at Sea, put her corresponding number and letter into the phrase and inadvertently solved it because she didn't recognize what it was. Bless her. Thankfully, J-Bones was there to let everyone know what it was that I'd spent 20 bucks worth of stamps on in a couple hours putting together. And so what was it that I sent out to all my pals? And his name is John C. Yeah, I apologize. I feel like you've also just been pranked by me a little bit just now, you know, by extension. Anyway, that was the kind of stuff we were doing for fun back in 2015. Remember that? My friends flipped the fuck out because I got them so bad, and rightfully so. You don't come back from that. Not in one piece. I feel real sorry for them, and now you too. In any case, yeah, that's the most rebellious thing I've ever done. Not too shabby, I don't think. Not for a son of Tottenville, anyway. The holy lines of demarcation separating Tottenville from the rest of the civilized world are well-defined. 
The yellow lines that split and divide Page Avenue mark the border between Tottenville and our two border towns, Richmond Valley and Charleston, which I get is confusing since we're nowhere near the cities of Richmond or Charleston. Regardless, Page Avenue intersects with Richmond Valley Road, forming the triple point where Tottenville, Richmond Valley, and Charleston all converge. This road, Richmond Valley, continues on, crossing east to west, along the Tottenville-Charleston border until it reaches Arthur Kill Road, where it neatly rounds off the corners of Tottenville. To recap, and look, I know this might sound like the height of tedium, but I wouldn't waste your time on this if it wasn't about to be important. But to recap, Tottenville's northern border is made up of two streets, Page Avenue and Richmond Valley Road. There are only three roads out of town. There's Highland Boulevard, which I mentioned earlier, Arthur Kill, which I just mentioned, and Amboy Road, which I'm only mentioning for the first time right now. The rest of Tottenville is surrounded by water. I wouldn't say we live on a peninsula, because we can never compete with the slenderiness of Florida or Scandinavia in this regard, but we're enough of a stub that, well, we're surrounded by water on three sides. We kind of jut out of the already crooked Staten Island, like the island's one big toe or something. I don't know. From any bird's eye, the Atlantic is to the east, and the Raritan Bay is to the west and south, graciously putting some distance between us and New Jersey. That said, you might literally be able to throw a stone over the Arthur Kill and hit Jersey. At least, you know, if you're Aaron Rodgers. If it isn't clear by now, Tottenville is cut off not only to the city we call home, but from our island at large. We are an island within an island, sequestered in isolation, if that makes sense. And it wasn't always like this. At the foot of Main Street, because yes, we have an actual Main Street, a ferry used to shuttle people in cars across the Arthur Kill. It was a point along the straightest line route for anyone traveling from Brooklyn to the Jersey Shore. Perhaps there were dreams that Tottenville would become something of a local economic powerhouse. The kind of idyllic suburbia you see on a postcard, but that traffic arrangement was obviously untenable for the modern world. In the summer of 1928, the Outer Bridge was opened. And I apologize, I gotta stop here for a moment. Something I've always been bothered by, of course, because I'm an unmitigated pedant, is that it's not actually the Outer Bridge, but rather the Outer Bridge crossing. Eugenius Harvey Outerbridge was the first chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. That's kind of wild, isn't it? A dude named Outerbridge ends up leading a Port Authority, and the most far-out bridge in the state gets named after him? There's a term for that. Nominative determinism. And this was a right-fit case if there ever was one. I mean, seriously, you think it's an accident there was a kicker in the NFL named Ryan Longwell? Or that the fastest man ever is a dude named Usain Bolt? Come on. Anyway, it's the Outer Bridge Crossing, and not the Outer Bridge, and I'll fight anyone who says otherwise. And why? Because it's important to remember that Outerbridge was a person. A man with hopes and dreams and a life and an absolutely killer mustache. I don't make the rules and I'm usually more timid than a turtle, but I once made a thing out of this over a mislabeled document I had to sign when I signed up for Easy Pass. The nice lady at the counter looked at me funny, as if I'd said something utterly ridiculous. After the Outerbridge crossing went up, Tottenville settled down and settled in. 
Arthur Kill Road runs right beneath it, on just that side of the Charleston borderline. Meaning this, Tonville is a place that's easy to pass over, quite literally. Similar to how the Staten Island Expressway cuts off the North Shore from the rest of Staten Island, Tottenville exists as this mere pocket of a town that can be avoided without much effort. You don't just pass through it. To get to it, you have to go to it. And given its geography, it's very alone in a way that the North Shore isn't. Like, at least the North Shore has St. George and Stapleton and Tompkinsville and Port Richmond and West Brighton all jam-packed together. Down here... There's just Tottenville. We don't have the same kind of affinity with Richmond Valley or Charleston or Pleasant Plains beyond them. We are so acutely cut off. Separate. And I don't mean to make it sound all bad. Quite the contrary. Growing up somewhere that had parks and a shoreline just an hour from quote-unquote the city was awesome. I wish I could figure out where I first heard this. I could have sworn it was in some New York Times article. But someone described Tottenville as being, at once, both an exile and a refuge. And that's it. That's really the perfect way to describe it. I mean, when thinking about living in New York City, even my first mental projection is of crammed tenement apartment buildings in Manhattan or Brooklyn lofts. I grew up in a home, though, with front and backyards and an in-ground pool. Luxuries I hope I've never taken for granted. Tottenville is also an old, lived-in town with a lot of history. There was this census article in the Advance once, and the Staten Island Advance is our local paper, but the Advance said that Tottenville had the highest percentage of native-born Staten Islanders living within its zip code as compared to the rest of the island, because most of the other zip codes fill up with Brooklyn transplants. What I'm trying to get at with all this is this. You know, Americans have this thing of talking about their ancestry, and I do the same thing, right? I'm half Irish and half Norwegian. But really what I am is someone from Tottenville. I'm still those other things. I'm still an American, a New Yorker, Staten Islander, Shaolinite. But I'm from Tottenville. The Conference House is Tottenville's claim to fame. If you've never heard of it before, I would not be surprised. Mainly because it was a big fucking failure. <laughs> 244 years ago, British naval commander Lord Richard Howe Admiral of the fleet, met with a curious band of revolutionaries, Edward Rutledge, John Adams, and the Benjamin Franklin. Staten Island as a whole has been on the wrong side of history time and time and time again, so of course, during the Revolutionary War, we were mostly a pack of loyalists. You know, now that I think about it, it's almost as if Staten Island is still living through its boneheaded years of its version of that story. You know, assuming the arc of America is going to be long. Anyway, Howe had just won some battles to gain some footing on Long Island, and he pushed Washington all the way back to Manhattan. And the revolution might have been well underway, but a conference was called with the hope that maybe a stake could be put in the fighting. Perhaps all together. 
They talked for three hours, they ate some ham, they left fruitless. So yeah, they couldn't get it done. The peace talks failed. This always arced me when I was growing up. I mean, yes, had the revolution not continued, who knows how world history might have been different. Certainly, I would not be here. And today the park itself is a nice little zone to have a picnic in. Lord knows how it might have otherwise been corrupted if something important actually got decided here other than, you know, nothing. My beef was with the fact that this is what I was saddled with. Why couldn't I grow up somewhere that had something cool happen? Why couldn't I live someplace where there could have been some famous harrowing battle? I pined for a legendary act of daring do. When from the depths of a vertiginous stupor, some hero summoned the might of ten to overcome a most loathsome, lethal challenger. Twas not to be. The fighting commenced, you know, elsewhere, and it's quite possible that over 100,000 people lost their lives in the revolution. 40,000 from combat alone. Forever thus, Tottenville was the meager host to a lousy board meeting between some old, white men. But, whatever. Life went on. A bridge was built. A South Pole erected. Eventually, I was born. And Tottenville has remained a fairly pedestrian suburbia ever since, complete with a regularness. A dullness. Bordered up by sea and by land. And it's made us all a little crazy. I mean, there's the Flat Earth sticker bandit. There's me. I think our need to place a narrow pole in the ground at a precise longitude and latitude and escalate the issue to a trial of literal Copernican proportion is but one piece of evidence of our common madness. And I know it sounds like I'm joking, and I guess I am sort of, but really? I'm not. To squabble over the problems we fight over, it's the task of fools. Before, I called flat eartherism a collective delusion, and I didn't make that up. That's what BuzzFeed News is calling QAnon stuff from now on, as opposed to being a conspiracy theory. Because here's the thing, right? Sometimes conspiracies are true, and it's important to be careful with the language we use. And I want to make that distinction because I've come to believe what feels like a conspiratorial truth. That there is something deeply, deeply wrong with my town. With Tottenville. And it is because we come from a place marked by its alleged failure. It is because of our isolation, which has only helped foster our island's segregation. For when you live in isolation, as we do, you can't mark a location with a pole, because there is only an edge on all sides and in every direction. And it is flat. The South Pole and Tottenville can't mark the South, and it can't mark our end, because when you live encircled and on the brink as we do, it's all the end. And what that means is that our sickness has made what we are capable of trenchant. We need a prayer. Perhaps the Hail Mary. George Floyd died on May 25th, 2020. 
murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis. The incident was caught on video and widely circulated online. The incident became national news overnight and the country broke. Or broke more, rather. A startling component of the video was the brazenness of the officer involved, Derek Chauvin. How he acted with the conviction of sure impunity as his peers stood by and did nothing, and as Floyd used his final breaths to plead for his deceased mother. In the days that followed, Black Lives Matter protests sprang up across the country, including here in New York City. Viral clips went around on Twitter showing heated exchanges between police and those protesting. Occasionally, chaos ensued, and lost in the moment, some took to looting shops and storefronts. Normally, I'd have serious qualms about reducing the events of those two weeks down to two paragraphs, right? Because, like, a lot happened. But it was that last bit, that last bit by itself, that the people on the south shore of Staten Island reduced all of the events down to and then unraveled themselves. All they saw was the looting, which to them meant rioting. There had been protests on the north shore of Staten Island, though no reported cases of looting as far as I can tell, but it didn't matter. It might as well have happened because that's just what's expected, because that's where they live, isn't it? That anarchy could break out on the lawless streets of Brooklyn and Manhattan wasn't a surprise to them. Those are the boroughs where the others live. And the North Shore was close to those boroughs and filled with their people. But never on the South Shore. No, <laughs> never, not here. Social media was chattering this whole time. That's nothing new. Boneheads are going to reveal themselves and wear their ignorance as a badge of honor until the final star in our universe goes supernova. But it wasn't until a march was planned to take place in Tottenville that a group formed on Facebook that wanted to make sure the South Shore was quote-unquote protected. These weren't people hiding in the slime-covered corners of the internet where anonymity and irony reign supreme. These were people putting their name to a commitment to be ready to be called to arms. Literally, should anyone from this march put so much as one foot onto their property. I don't want to be mistaken, but I also just want to call it as I saw it. A lynch mob was being formed on the South Shore. A few screenshots from this Facebook group made their way around on Twitter and Instagram. I didn't know any of the posters personally, but I definitely recognized some last names. And I know we live on a big island, but it's also not... These were the people that I'd been living beside my entire life, and they were so filled with rage and fear because, God forbid, some people voiced their concern over the extrajudicial murder of black lives in America. I'm sure you saw on Facebook people were, like, ready to arm the South Shore. Yeah. And it's just like, what? Yeah, nothing about that is positive or impactful in any way. It's kind of just you impacting the rest of the world by showing that you're a garbage person. Like no one was coming to fuck up your day. No, except maybe causing a little traffic by walking down Highland Boulevard. Like no one was doing anything that was directly impacting your life and your continued way of life. Uh, it was, yeah, 
I'm glad I don't live on the South Shore anymore. <laughs> I, I love Staten Island. So many people hate it. So many people rag on it. I think it's a beautiful place. I think there's so much culture. And it's just a matter of whether or not you want to find it, you know? I grew up on the South Shore. I lived in the middle of the island for my middle years, and now I live on the North Shore. Like, when I was growing up on the South Shore, I remember when the first, like, Black neighbors moved in, and it was something that my family talked about. And being in the music scene for 15 years, we've always gone to the North Shore for arts and creation and things like that, and it exists so much here on the North Shore. But when we were going, it was, be careful, we're going to the North Shore, blah, 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 this is the dangerous area. And it's like, how fearful do you have to be of your own shadow to, like, threaten a child that wants to walk in your streets in the name of peace? Like, talk about living in fear. You're afraid of your own shadow, man. (laughs) That was terrifying. Yeah. I think that the South Shore develops a lot more slowly with a lot of respects because physically it developed more slowly because there was just less people there. There were less ideas being spread and there was less diversity in the crowd of people. Whereas where I am now, I mean, my building's 100 years old and there's 20,000 apartments in it. Like all different mixes of people all in and out all the time because so many people were kind of crowded in here around the same time. Um, And there's a lot of differences in socioeconomic status but in pretty much the same general area but to me the 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 only thing that can be done to address the segregation is to allow yourself to remove those barriers the issue comes from people being implicitly and i really do believe that most people are implicitly biased and implicitly racist on staten island and i don't think that they think there's anything wrong, but these implicit biases on the South Shore don't allow for Black people or people of color to be comfortable existing there. And that is a struggle in itself. So why would a Black person or a person of color move to an area where they know it's going to be uncomfortable? So they're not going to do it because Mm -hmm. they don't want to. It's uncomfortable for them. Reasonable. White people won't move here because of the same but different reason. They're going to feel uncomfortable. They're going to feel scared. They're going to have these issues. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of people doing a lot of work. I mean, shit, I'm probably not even going to stay in New York or Staten Island to raise a family if I raise a family at all. So I have no legacy in the North Shore. Mm -hmm. And that would be the way it happens is that people kind of transplanting themselves on their own accord and then growing from there. And as someone who has like made the jump and even, you know, being immersed in that, I still have no idea how to bridge the gap. Like I don't understand and I don't really know how to teach someone that people that are different from them are still people. I think it's easier to, you know, beat your chest and protect quote unquote what is yours and all of that than start to really look in question. It's, it's easier to project than to reflect. Yeah, yeah. That was painful. When you start questioning, like I said, it just doesn't stop. And then it's like, wow, most of the things that I've been taught, most of the things I've been raised on that I never thought to question before, like, wow, there might be a lot more to this. Some of it might be untrue. It's questions beget questions and it's kind of like a never ending unraveling. It might be rooted in be biased. It might be rooted in hate. 
sometimes people keep themselves from all of that because it's easier not to because because otherwise there's a lot of pain going down that path. I wish I could say that I wasn't shocked, that it's always been so clearly obvious, some dark open secret, but I honestly didn't think it could happen here, truly. I know that stuff exists in the world, but not here, right? I always clung to the belief that you live the better world you wish to see because that's really all you can control. And so you let the occasional insensitive comments slip by without challenge. Because to believe that there's anything but the overwhelming cordial route extended to you by someone wouldn't override their worst tendencies when it matters most is to despair. I mean, yeah, we were Staten Island. We were the South Shore, but come on, we're still New York, right? But it's clear now the bubble around Tottenville has been a fantastical snow globe, shielding us from having to reckon with misunderstanding directly resulting from that bubble's very existence. And when finally tested, we popped. The worst among us shouted the loudest. That there can be people here that are at once both so like me and still antipodal to everything, everything that I stand for, makes me sick. Never again will I be so naive. The march was set for Sunday, June 7th at 2 p.m. And it was set to take place at the conference house, 89,023 days after the failed peace talks. Starting there, they would head to the 123 police precinct, which, yes, I know sounds like it belongs not so much in Tottenville, but maybe Sesame Street, and then back again. And what a convenient metaphor it would be, wouldn't it? A protest in support of black lives taking place at the site of a failed peace talk not far from the most southern tip of the reddest of red districts in New York. What good could be done? How could it have ended with anything other than comedy or tragedy? But here's the thing I left out about the origin story of the conference at the conference house. This is what everyone forgets. After Lord Richard Howe, Admiral of the Fleet, secured Brooklyn, he and his brother, a General Sir William Howe, decided to take their foot off the gas for the sake of diplomacy. Like I said, nobody wanted the fighting to continue, not needlessly. So maybe reconciliation and restoration was on the table. They just wanted to talk, informally if need be, with the rebel leaders to see what it would take to bring the revolution to an end. The Continental Congress was against the meeting for a slew of reasons. Mostly, they didn't want to inadvertently negotiate their own resubjugation. But still, they sent Franklin, Adams, and Rutledge, a trio of harbingers. This is the thing of the thing, though. All they had in their power was to ask Lord Howe questions. They wanted to suss him out and see what kind of authority he actually had. You see what I'm saying? This wasn't a peace talk. This was a fact-finding mission. A meeting to possibly have another, more official meeting somewhere down the line. Right, like, they couldn't make any formal declarations because the Continental Congress didn't authorize them with any official authority. They were just there to see if their revolution would be recognized as a legit enterprise. And on the other side, Lord Howe might have had full control over the British Army's land and sea operations, but that was it. All the tools in his diplomatic arsenal had been neutralized. Right, like, this is what he could do declare peace, and grant pardons. 
You think the British royal court was going to let the admiral of the fleet openly discuss legitimate grievances? Give me a break. Lord Howe was stripped of any real power, and he knew it. And here's the real kicker. They all knew this about each other, you know, more or less, right? Franklin, Adams, and Rutledge couldn't talk on the record, and even if they could, Lord Howe had no bargaining power and nothing to negotiate. The Americans would not recognize peace without independence. Pessimism and despair abounded in all directions because it was crystalline clear that nothing was going to come from this meeting. And yet, and yet, they all still went. They still went. Howe was even considering blowing off the whole thing until he talked to his brother about it, that General Sir William Howe. And you know what? People like him deserve a fucking medal, and we'll call it just that after him. The General Sir William Howe Award. I can only imagine what that conversation was like when he convinced his brother to go. That the cause of peace, to strive for harmony among your fellow person, was to take aim of heaven. To dream of a life in tranquility and meaningful brotherhood. That they came together in that spirit despite their certain defeat. This is not failure. Not at all. Not by a long shot. And you know what? I'm not big on hope, but is there a more remarkable display of hope than in the face of certain failure? I take pride in calling this place my home, if only for that. Annoyingly proud and reluctantly, but I am. That happens. And that happened here. And so I think in many ways, the conference house was in fact the perfect spot for this march to occur. Peace often fails, but it takes guts just to try. It takes courage. Courage to walk into the land of those that would rather see you dead and stand up and say, you will today, here and in this place and at this time, hear me. And you will listen and you will learn, and we will emerge together, better for it. Because with peace on the table, you never know what can happen. It is so much easier, infinitely easier, to give in, to fight, to be abrasive and to bully and to be hostile and to commit terror. I would never say that the protests that took place throughout the city were unimportant, but was there one more important than the one that took place in Tottenville? This is where it needed to happen most, and these are the people that needed to hear it, that didn't want it, that threatened it. And I can promise you, you didn't hear about it on the news. None of our clips went viral on Twitter or Instagram. But you know what? That day, 2,000 Staten Islanders showed up. From the North Shore to Tottenville, we showed up, just outside the Park Quad, at the Point Highland Boulevard ends the southernmost point. This project has been a ruse. All of this has been set up because really what I've wanted to do since that day is 
put together a platform for someone that spoke at that rally. Someone whose words have etched into my soul and reshaped me. Every time this project got tough, I found inspiration in the fact that, no, I need to keep going. I need, I need everyone to hear what I heard from Donovan Robinson. And so this is it, really. This is a conversation we had a few weeks after the rally. I hope you enjoy. Hello. Hey, what's going on, my man? Good. How are you doing? I'm A-OK, man. Glad to be here. Can you see me good? Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. My name is Donovan Robinson. I am a New Orleans-born uh, person, I guess. <laughs> I moved to Staten Island in 2006 after Hurricane Katrina. Even though, you know, my heart's in New Orleans, my body is 100% New York City, and I am New York. I could, I'm, I'm actually more New York now than I am New Orleans, so mm. New York is my home, and I just love it here, man. That now is a, it's so different. You know, when you think New York City, you think of Manhattan, you think of Brooklyn. Well, Staten Island is kind of like a culmination of both. You kind of have that upper, I don't want to say upper echelon, but it has a, like that like that strong vibe of like a Manhattan, but with that suburb feel like the Brooklyn could be at times. So it's kind of like a beast in its own. As far as Staten Island itself, Staten Island is, for the most part, segregated. Uh, it's segregated by highways, the highways that bears the North Shore and South Shore. And what happens, you know, growing up on Staten Island, both of these sides have their own thing. You know, both of these sides have their own schools. Both of these sides have their own grocery stores, movie theaters, pool, swimming pools. Right. So a lot of times, unless you have something important on the opposite side, you probably wouldn't even need to go on to the other side, you know. So with that being said, it causes a disparage between the people and it's not as much integration as you would think it would be in a place like New York City in a time like 2020. So when you have two, it's not even, it's not a language term, this is like literal. When you have two separate communities on an island, you're stuck on an island, right? And you have two communities that don't have to interact or they're made specifically for people not to interact. What happens is, you know, I grew up on the North Shore whatever the case may be, another person may grow up on the South Shore, but because you haven't had the need to go over to the North Shore, you aren't as familiar with the different minorities and different ethnic groups that are around. So because of that, you don't really have a connection or a feel of the true community of Staten Island because you've kind of been pushed to one side and not been pushed to another side, uh, which down the line causes friction because, you know, even though they make it seem like it's just one big island, we all live at odds. And it's not because of the people, it's just the way Staten Island was built and structured. It's, you know, I, I work in the South Shore and, you know, in, in the store that I work at, you know, you can feel, you can feel it, you know. You get the odds, you get the stares, you get the comments, you know what I'm saying? I've been, you know, coming through the parking lot out here, you know, doors clicking as if I'm coming to go inside of your door. You can feel it, you know, and that's why it's so scary because you know, as more, you know, crazy things happen, people start to show their true colors. It's tough, man, especially in your youth. You know, it's, society is hard enough, you know, you know, you know, there's so many things going on. You're, you're trying to make it in, in a rat race, you know, and, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it doesn't help to feel like your country as a kid, you know. 
And, you know, it's one thing to have the government, right? Because government is the government. There's always been the people versus the government mentality. You know, that's been on since Great Britain and beyond, right? Yeah. But once these instances come up, you know, then what you have, when you try to push forward for that justice, you get that backlash from the community. Now, that, that's where it really hurts, you know, because the police are going to police, the government's the government. It's not the first time in history they've played that role. But when you also have your community patronizing you, demeaning you, literally, I've had, I got I got to a point for a long time where I stopped speaking because I would get into arguments everywhere I go, just trying to simply explain how a man can be choked out to death for selling something like loose cigarettes, right? And what would happen, unfortunately, with Staten Island, is I have been fortunate enough to be on both sides at times. So I have friends on both sides. And unfortunately, you know, I had a lot of great friends who understood, but I lost a lot of friends as well, simply off of having these kind of conversations with, I don't want to lose any more friends. I don't want to even have this conversation and you say something incredibly stupid or bigoted or one-sided and I lose a friend. So growing up on Staten Island, if you did have the opportunity to have friends, I had, like I said, I had, I had a lot of great people who completely understood, and I had a lot of friends that I had to stop associating with because they showed me their true colors. It can be really, really tough. You know, in my youth, I was 13 to 17 during that stop and frisk era, and I must have been stopping and frisk at least 40 times. Now, when I tell somebody something like that, that they, they think I'm, of course, you think it's bullshit. You think it's crazy. And I don't fault them for that, right? Because how do you tell someone a unicorn is real if they've never seen a unicorn? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If in any other situation a cop has done the right thing, why the hell would they want to grab you, some random kid, 40 times over the span of three to four years? Yeah. But this was my life. You know, when they came out, it was guns drawn. You know, it's not it's not like, you know, SUV where they pop up, you know, they have a conversation. No, nah, right. not at all. I could literally be getting off the 46 bus stop backpack on my back, you know, and when that cop turns that corner from Alaska, I can see his eyes through his tinted windows because I know he saw me and I know he's going to get to me before I could get to my building, right? So once that car sees you, they jump the curb. They jump the curb. Two cops get out. First of all, they're unmarked cars. There was no marked cars at the time, you know, they had the badges if they had the badges, but there's always the vest and the hat and that's how we do it. The vest and the hat, they hop out, take you to the ground. So you're on the ground, so you have trained veterans, you know, the, the veterans are coming for us. You know, we're 15, 16. I'm, I'm not your regular average beat NYPD cops. It's talking about trained uh, seasoned veterans that were targeting us because that's what they were told to do. You know, it's a numbers game. If you go after enough, if you go after 100, you get 10. If you go after 500, you can get 15, whatever the case may be. But we paid the price for that. I never carry any guns. I never got any drugs. I've never been arrested. You know what I'm saying? But somehow I was always, always, always targeted, you know, to the point where it was so normal for us that when we would come home from schools, we always had like a group of girls. Cause we, were, we were like, we're young, you know? Yeah, yeah. We would be able to prosper off of it, right? And I say, I don't want to say prosper in a good way, but I knew that that car right there is going to stop us. So we got these girls with us. So the cops would jump out on us. The girls are there, you know, we get tapped up and checked out and thrown on the wall. And we would just laugh it off because now we look cool in front of the women. They let us right. go, of course, because we didn't have anything. Right. But we were so used to it that it wasn't a thing for us. Like, it didn't really, I didn't, if I knew how much of a big deal it was, I would have maybe said something sooner, 
But I didn't know my rights at the time. You know, I didn't know my rights. I didn't know they couldn't stop me for no apparent reason. So it was, Staten Island was tough to grow up. So I got, I got another story. So um, I, at the time I was work, I was, I think I was 16. So uh, I was outside uh, on my way to work. I had to catch the bus. I had my duffel bag with me full of my stuff. Uh, I go into the store. I go into the store. At the time, I know I'm 18, young, I shouldn't be, but I was smoking black and mouth because I was trying not to smoke weed or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I go into the store, I get the black and mouth, I have this bag on me. Now I'm standing in front of the store, just chopping with a couple friends uh, right before I go to work. The bus was probably like five minutes away. I still had a little bit of time. So we were all standing there. This is like two o'clock in the afternoon because I'm trying to make that four o'clock shift. So we're all standing there in a detective car, all black Ford, careens by us, right? Flies past us, slams on the brakes. Throws the car in reverse. Two cops hop out. They grab my boy, throw him on the wall. They pat him down, y'all, in case may be. He has been in trouble before, so that's how they know his face. So that's an easy way to not stop and frisk ever. It wasn't like just random people either. If they, if you have been in trouble before, you're now like a lead. So they throw him on the wall, you know, ah, what you doing here? Check his pockets, you got any warrants? He's like, nah, I don't got no warrants. He's like, third. They're like, nah, you got one. The heck with it. Yeah, you got warrants. So they go, you know, go through the whole shabooge. He doesn't have water. Okay, so they get back in the car, they're about to go away. And right before he closes the door, the officer on the passenger side, he gets back out the car. When he gets out back out the car, he comes directly to me. So he's talking to me, he's like, yo, where's your ID? I'm like, my ID? For what? I didn't do nothing. He's like, yo, give me your ID, I need your ID. So I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm out of pocket, give him the ID. He's like, yo, what's in the bag? I'm like, clothes, you wanna see? And I open the bag, clothes, whatever the case may be. So he goes to the car. I, of course, have no warrants. 46 flies by me. I just missed my bus. Now I'm waiting for it. So he comes back to me. And as he comes back, I'm still smoking the black and mild, whatever the case may be. He's talking to me, and I kind of spit to the side. You know, whenever he smoke a cigarette, he smoke a black and mild, yada, yada. He goes, aha, I got you. I'm like, you got me? He's like, yeah, you didn't know it was illegal to spit in public in New York? I'm like, what? I'm like, you kidding me, right? He's like, no. Takes my ID, right? Goes back to the car. I watch him pull out his personal cell phone, take pictures of my ID, and then put it back in his pocket. Now, at the same time, luckily, my mom is coming home. She works uh, health aid, and her, one of her aides had dropped her off. So at this time, I'm on the car now, like waiting, you know what I'm saying? He's checking me out more, I guess. Whatever else he's looking for, because I already showed him I didn't have any points. My mom comes out, she's like, what's going on here? And you know, she's trying to defend me. I'm, begging her, please, anything but that, you know? It's even so much as your mother trying to fight for you could land you in even more trouble. So I then received a ticket that day for spitting, which is like, I didn't even know that was a thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's, I got, and I have so many stories like that. That's why I say that I use that phrase, that unicorn. You know, you don't believe, you never believe in a unicorn unless you physically saw a unicorn with your own eyes. And a lot of these situations, for a lot of people, these are like impossible things. Who would give a kid a ticket for spitting? You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. spitting, you know, you know, with the, with all the things in the world and 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 real crimes going on. So I had, yeah, I had yeah. to go to court. I had to add here from that. When I went to court, the judge immediately threw it out, and then I went home, you know? Yeah. Loitering, you know, in front of your own building. You know, it was yeah. a time where we couldn't stand in front of the building even though we lived there, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I can go on and on, man. And the same token, you know, I understand it's a job, you know? And people doing that job want to go home. But the culture 
and the disregard for life and the efforts of you getting home yourself has blurred the line significant. We're both trying to get home because you're a cop, you deserve to go home more than I do. And then with that kind of culture, it's easy to justify, you know, shooting anybody when you yourself are trying to make it home too. It, it wasn't always that way, you know, same thing with Stapleton and Amos, right? You know, it was, a, it, at one point, it was an integrated situation. Yeah. But over time, you know, there's certain, certain systematic tools that they use to kind of court off that growing minority population. Construction and things were being done on the South Shore because it was it was mainly like grassland stuff like that. Right. Uh, these opportunities were given, you know, it would be almost taboo to allow you know a minority to come into that community because it would bring down your property value. It would bring down the property value your house of the community itself. So once these properties were being built, they stressed to make sure that you know that access wasn't given. I was just reading the other day. I was reading up on. Uh sandy ground and how here in the south shore we had one of the longest continuously uh settlements of free people and and now it's it's all but gone you know there's some remnants that are still here some families and descendants that are still here but imagine what that could have been if rossville wasn't filled with condominiums you know and you know you know what the and that's a part of the problem, right? Because I didn't know that myself until about two weeks ago when a friend yeah. of mine told me when I heard that there was an underground road on the South Shore, yeah. Not only did it blow my mind, but the fact that you didn't know it either shows that both neither of us was given that information. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And that has been, you know, detrimental in, you know, this whole thing is where my history was tarnished. My history was damaged and by the way that they describe us, my people, and our history. But on the other side, for you guys, a lot of your history was flat out erased. You don't even, you don't hear about these things. You don't talk about these things because for there to be a underground railroad settlement, I mean, that means a white person was helping these people. You know, there was a lot of help. There was a lot of love, but that wasn't the story they wanted to tell. I had mentioned in the protest about, you know, the 70s, you know, the Black Panthers were done a, just a disservice by being regarded as thugs, hoodlums, radicals, you know. So that's how they were able to oppress those people without any, you know, blowback, right? Because they told society they were criminals. And at the same token, a disservice that was done to, you know, my white colleagues and counterparts was, you know, they told everybody the hippies, you know, everybody in the 70s was hippies. You know, everybody did acid and it was Woodstock and it was peace and love. It wasn't just peace and love. It was peace and love, but those people were out there fighting an unjust war that was causing countless amounts of American lives, as well as being hand in hand with us in the, you know, social injustices. It's Martin Luther King was in the street by himself. You guys have always been there, but every chance they got, they kind of erase that. That way, they can. It can always be this segregation. That's me versus you, world that we live in. So what happens is, you know, you grow up, I grow up. You know, I get a little older. I start doing my research, and then I find out what actually happened. You know, in my history. Now, me and you are at heads because you know, I'm all my aggression is pointed to you for something you feel like which you have never done, right? Because you you've never done it. You know what I'm saying? But you don't understand what the full extent of what happened was because you were never taught it just like we were never taught it. And if both of these things would, try to be, would have tried to be addressed, the true history of America at its core, 
then we wouldn't be at odds down the lane. And I just feel like a big part of getting this right is teaching the right stories, you know. So when you have this whitewashing of the history, you know, and then you combinate that with that feeling of being attacked, because that's what it is at its root. People feel that they are attacked because, you know, the black people are kind of calling America's number. So in that, a lot of, you know, white people feel that attack because, you know, I'm not a, I was never a slave owner. Like, what does this have to do with me? But slavery was only about two and a half grandfathers ago. That's it. Your grandfather, his grandfather, that guy's grandfather was a slave. So they'll put slavery right next to, they'll put the slavery stuff next to Egypt stuff, you know? And you create this ideology that it was so, so long ago, not knowing America's one of the newest empires to be risen on the face of the planet. And that misinformation just leads down the road to bad things. And unfortunately, your peers are the ones who pick it up. You know, something else that you brought up at the march that any time in the, in the news when a white kid on the South Shore ODs, he was an angel, there was so much promise, it's such a tragedy. But if a black kid on the North Shore gets in any kind of trouble, it's, he was... Uh, the streets can be rough, you know, especially, you know, when you're trying to make it out of, you know, a lot of bad situations, because that's what happens. A lot of people end up in bad situations, which is how you end up in, you know, certain neighborhoods. So in my youth growing up, I would have, you know, 14, 15, 16, where I have a friend who maybe in a car crash or maybe gunned down. And, you know, before that family is able to contact you, before that family's friend, or, you know, before you even go outside to see, you know, other people who may have seen it or been there, you know, you turn your phone on because in this day and age, that's what we do. We go straight to the phone. And the first thing you see on your timeline is Staten Island Advance. Now the Staten Island Advance has already come out with their own article in that short amount of time where they're demonizing, you know, a 15 year old, you know, a 15 year old was gunned down. I think we can all agree that's, that's tragic and senseless, right? But you're not giving that benefit of the doubt on the North Shore, you know? They're pulling up his rap sheet, you know, when he was a kid, when he was younger, he got suspended for bringing a knife to school. You know, when he was a teen, he got caught uh, with a bag of weed in his pocket. And the narrative changes, right? So when you talk about, you know, that disparage between the South Shore and the North Shore, if you don't come to the North Shore often, then your one of your only references would be a standout in advance. But every time you pick up a standout advance, if you're seeing if these young kids are being demonized, then of course, you know, once we do cross paths, you're kind of giving me that look, you know, or even from a cop standpoint, if you're a cop who grown, who's grown up on Staten Island and you haven't been able to have that integration because your high school is on one side, from literally from elementary school to middle school to high school to college, like literally all on the South Shore where you don't need to go to the North Shore. Once you hit your beat and you're now dropped in the middle of these areas, because that's what they do. The rookies, they don't really warm them up. You know, when you, once you come out the gate, they're dropping you off in some of these neighborhoods. And a lot of these neighborhoods do kind of get crazy. And it's something that needs more of a veteran's touch, right? But you now have this cop on a beat who doesn't know the community. And everything that he knows, it comes from news sources like SI Live that demonize literally children, you know, and on the other side, you have the South Shore, which has had a tragic, tragic opioid epidemic that's been taking the lives of countless kids, countless young people. But in the same token, they're they're not demonized, you know, you know, a lot of these kids are sick, you know, they made bad choices, but their bad choices 
don't paint who they are. And unfortunately, in the North Shore, we don't get that same respect. And a lot of times, which is awful, and I hate to say, you know, we live in an odd world that likes conflict, right? So when you have, you know, the thug this or the gangbanger that, that's an easy click. And that's the way a lot of these companies, you know, they profit off of, you know, the clicks. My friends had a house party, and I was we were living, it was in a West Brighton Projects, which is literally, some people garages are bigger than the, uh, the apartments that are there. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a little party. It wasn't really so much of a party as much like a gathering. A group of people came by. It got kind of rough, don't get me wrong, and the cops were called. The next day in the paper, it was, have you seen the movie Project X? Yeah. It was, yo, they were like Project X party over a thousand people in attendance, brawls everywhere. And I'm like, you couldn't fit 50 people in this apartment. <laughs> like, and I read this in black and white, in print. It was there. A thousand people at this crazy party. And it's like just blatantly spiced up to have a better story. That way you can pick up that paper and you can, you can, you can have that click. So it's, it's a spooky world, man. It, it would be easy to say, you know, try to do what's right. But what's right isn't always the same for everybody. I'm a man of principles, you know. I'm not going to take pride in a race against someone who was handicapped or had, or, you know, I was 100 yards ahead of him. He was 100 yards to the back of me. I wouldn't want my tax dollars to be given to people who are going to abuse other people and in turn, throw them in jail because we all know mass incarceration in, in, in America is a major thing, right? So you don't even you don't have you don't even have to like black people. As a person paying taxes, I would think you wouldn't want all of your tax money going to people being unjustly put in just or not people being put in jail. Period, right? Right. And that's why I feel like you have to try really hard to be against this, right? To be against yeah. positive. You know, it's not like. I'm not like I'm asking for like betterment. I'm just asking for equal rights, you know, just equal. You know, I say my life matters and people are like, mm, you know, all lives matter. But if all lives matter, wouldn't you responding to me with that be contradicting then? Yeah. If all lives matter, when I said black lives matter, it would have just been a yeah. But you give that all lives matter because that gives you that kind of breathing room to not outright say nah I don't think so because shortly after we were condemned for the Black Lives Matter movement the Blue Lives Matter movement was raised right and now those two groups kind of work synonymously and I think it's odd that they're not met with the same quote we were met you never heard someone tell somebody from Blue Lives Matter no Blue Lives not all lives matter you don't hear that so is it the Black that only concerns people that kind of mind game and this kind of chess moves it takes a lot of energy to play this game to run this scenario if you if you're simply expressing that your life matters right wouldn't it be like a heart or like a dove or yeah. like a yeah. shield you know get the the, the the NYPD shield no they've chosen the punisher's goal so what does that tell me as a black kid I tell you my life matters and you reply with the not only does my life matter more but I'm your judge I'm your jury and I am your executioner and they, I don't know who's making the swag the gear but they must have a shitload because I see moms with it aunts with it grandkids with it grandmoms with it dad has it and it's everywhere right so in the struggle of me trying to convince that my life matters not my life is better my life just it just matters you know this other militia was built out of the very people who were put in charge to protect 
protect me. And I have to live on an island where they are sporting anti-me. There's literally anti-me clothes. At least with the Klan, the faces were hidden. In today's day and age, it's just outright. They just use a little bit more meticulous things. Now, inside of that Punisher skull is the American flag, but instead of red, white, and blue, it's just white, black, and blue. So that's the way America feels. That when you're sending those kind of subliminal messages, you're expressing that the true blue is only blue and there's no other colors. How did you become a leader in all of this? And how did you find yourself speaking at these rallies with 2,000 people at them? So I spoke at two marches, and both of those marches were complete accidents. So the first march I went to, I actually hit my boy up that I used to work with. I hit, I hit him up on Humble. Just, you know, what's up, bro? What you doing? Do you want to hang out, chill, whatever? He's like, yeah, uh, actually, I'm going to this protest uh, Friday. Yo, you should come, this, that, and the third. And this is, you know, of course, the George Floyd protest. So at that time, I literally kind of shrugged him off. You know, when you've been through the Eric Gardner's and the Tamir Rice's, the Sandra Bland's, and, you know, you're already living through the stop and frisk, you know, you're living through poverty, you develop this hopelessness, you know. That's why a lot of, you know, kids in the minority communities don't vote because they're at such a hopeless state, they don't feel like their vote means anything, which is the opposite. But at the time, I just go for what? You know, they're just going to kill another one. What's the difference? So uh, the next day I end up going to work and, you know, what happens is, you know, what the black community has to deal with is, like I said, you you now have George Floyd's killing. The whole world sees the videotape. Black man being lynched, but you have to go to work tomorrow. You don't get the day off. You don't get no mental time, you know, and those things really affect people, you know, because you are living in a society and world where you a have your government who is out to kill you at times and b your community is shaming you for trying to stick up for what's right. And we were at work and everybody was having a great day and, you know, people are joking and laughing, but, you know, you have these things running through your head all day as you're working and you look around to your peers and, you know, the people who are not minorities and you can see how they're just not affected, you know, because it doesn't concern them. So a friend of mine, you know, she was at work and she was having a real tough time. Her name is Arielle. And her, she was completely crushed, you know. Yet again, it's happened another time. Like you said, we're on Staten Island, so we know that pain specifically. That happened right down the street from my grandmother's house. So she just cried, man, cried, because she just was in disbelief that everybody could be so happy in a state where this could happen to any one of us, you know what I'm saying? So when she broke down and she told me that she was going to the march later, I'm like, no, I got to go. I got, I have to go there, you know what I'm saying? So I went to the march, I brought one of my big speakers. There's a big, bright orange speaker. I'm outside, I'm bumping Kendrick Lamar, the we gonna be all right. It took me like an hour just to catch up with him. Halfway through it, the speaker dies. So now I'm lugging this giant dead speaker in 95 degree weather. So when we get there, and I didn't realize it was gonna be a speaking portion, and I, the words and everything they were saying, I was so inspired that I looked at my mans, I was like, yo, I think I'm going up there. He's like, what? I'm like, hold my speaker. He's like, hold your speaker. Hold my speaker. So now I'll bum rush the stage. Now I bum rush the stage. I seen a mentor and a, and, and a, a former teacher of mine. His name is Ronti. So I seen Ronti. I grabbed him. I'm like, yo, Ronti, you got to speak, man. He's like, what? He's like, D, you got a lot of people here. You know, everybody wants to speak. I'm like, nah, listen, Ronti, you got to let me speak. So he's like, all right. 
gave me a second, 20 minutes went by, 30 minutes went by. I was the last person to speak. And then when I got up there, I literally just put my heart out and, and, you know, everybody had just related and they felt what I was saying. So from there, my man Snoop, who was a part of the young lady, he's like, yo, we're trying to do something on Sunday on the South Shore at the Colonial House. Yo, you got to pull up. So I'm like, all right, cool, I'll pull up. So that's Friday. Saturday goes by and that was Sunday morning. Sunday morning, there are Facebook group chats of, you know, uh, uh, not everybody, but a couple people from the South Shore who, you know, this, this, you know, we're locked and loaded. Now on my side of town, we got guns ready. This, that, and third, we'll be waiting for them. So I start to, you know, blast on Facebook, don't show up to this event, you know, just for safety reasons. Why I didn't want people to go there, you know, uh, race war, fight breaks out. And then, you know, I had a part in that. So I tell them not to go. I think that the march might have been for like two o'clock. So by like one o'clock, I'm sitting there. I'm like, nah, I gotta go. And my shorty's like, what? But this and that. I'm like, yeah, but you know, I just gotta go. I'm like, worst case scenario, I'll take a couple pictures of you know these dudes, the motorcycle dudes, white supremacists, whatever. I'll blast them on Facebook, whatever the case may be. So she's like, all right, I'm gonna go with you. So we hop in the car, we drive and we drive and you know, you can always tell when you're on the South Shore because that you have the, those old Victorian, those beautiful Victorian houses and stuff. So now I, I see the houses, I'm getting nervous because now I know like I'm getting closer. You know, the farther you get, the, the nicer the house. Not to just say they were nicer houses, but that old school, that, yeah. that uh, Victorian style house. So uh, we finally get to the conference house, we turn the corner and it's just a sea of just people, to see if people, probably 80% white people and it just Black Lives Matter signs everywhere. It was like amazing. Right? So we get out the car and we got the car, I'll be honest, I was still kind of leery. So I'm kind of walking through the crowd, you know, trying to size people up. But now the crowd kind of falls into this chaos, right? Because now everybody's rowdy, either yelling and screaming, you know, no one's kind of stepping up. So I grabbed the megaphone and I kind of just calmed the crowd down, calmed the crowd down. And then I just started telling some of my stories, you know, the things that I've been through and, you know, I'm not a religious person or a spiritual person, but just for me, I was, since then, I've just been in the right time with the right place and people just respond and, and, and appreciate the things that I was saying. So from there, it was like, all right, we're gonna start the march. And we're trying to wait for the whole crowd to get in. So we're waiting, we're waiting, and then the street is packed. So then, you know, I go to start speaking and then all of a sudden all you hear from around the corner is Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. The crowd hadn't even finished coming in, so they had the police had to move cars so we could fit more people onto the street. So once we finally got people onto the street, started speaking again, you know, about you know the injustices that Staten Island has had, the division that they want to keep us with that separation, um, the history behind how we've all been in this fight, but they only tell one side, and that leads you know us to foot the bill with each other, you know. The work that needs to be done to undo that is, you know, the, the burden is on the South Shore to step up. What does that look like for our community in order to make our entire island something that's more welcoming? I mean, I think that is something that is going to take a generation beyond yours and mine to really be able to address and tackle, right? Because for now, with our generation, we have to address, we have to identify that there is this problem, right? At the very least, with our generation, we can identify the problem that maybe our kids or our grandkids will be able to help fix the problem. But what happens is if you force something on a group of people who don't even really understand why it matters, then you're going to only cause more friction. There has to be a deeper plan than just 
desegregated because we have still not addressed the initial plan. And what happened, right? They put the Black Lives Matter painting and there was, of course, a retaliation like there always is. Now there's a blue strip going through Highland Boulevard. I haven't seen anything as far as, you know, permits from the city. None of the right steps were taken. Literally just a blue line. They're literally drawing lines. Like we're at a point where we're literally drawing lines in the street. Like we're in a cowboy movie, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Simply because I painted Black Lives Matter over here, which is a simple statement, you know, everyone can agree with. That shows the true opposition of both of these situations. They said their lives matter, and we had to show that, no, our lives matter. So they painted an entire strip of a street blue. And then we're going to once again be in this countless, 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 countless rotation of just this back and forth, which is, is really tragic. You know, this is the most conservative borough in the city. The South Shore is the most conservative section of the city. And yet it wasn't broadcast. I didn't see us on, on any of the major news outlets or anything like that. My question in, in, in all of that, I guess, is, you know, as you're, as you're saying, you know, it's, it's going to be something that takes many generations potentially to correct. But I guess what my question in all of that is, is, you know, just, I don't know. It, Say, you don't got to sweeten it. No, just no, it. it's not that I'm not trying to sweeten it. It's just like, how do we keep on going when it's just going to be us? The rest of the city is not going to have our backing because the rest of the city has written us off, right? 100%, right. But it's, so, it's, yeah. So that that particular protest taught me a lot, right? You know, me as myself, I've grown up on Staten Island. I've been through all the racism and all that other bullshit. So like I said, when I went there, I was extremely skeptical. But once I got there, I was embraced with the kind of love that I didn't think was a lot on the South Shore. You know, we're not talking about a handful of people. We're talking about 2,000 people, right? And for that, for me, it was such an eye-opening situation where I can take with a deep breath that this is not this is not my entire city. You know what I'm saying? My entire city does not think this way. My entire city was not the ones in those group chats. You know, you had that handful, that good amount of people, but whatever it may be, the case B, they don't represent my city as a whole, you know. And in that protest, those people in the South Shore, they really came and they showed out. And it really stuck to me that I can't get hung up on people I can't change, you know, because there's so many people that have their hearts and minds open and they're willing to walk the right direction now. So I'm not going to waste my time, you know, arguing with people, trying to persuade people. You're going to respect what I have to say because when I come, I'm going to come correct. You know, I don't speak on things I don't know about. I don't speak on, I don't even have conversations if I haven't already done the research myself. So it's pointless to try to take that route with it. When you, and it's funny that you mentioned it, you know, we're talking about a protest of 2,000 people, 2,000 people, which is a crazy, even for New York City standards, that's an amazing protest. The only one of its kind of Staten Island. And it's so, this one specifically was, I feel like, more the most important in New York City because of the reputation that Staten Island has had for a long time. And this was kind of its reckoning of, you know, what I call the new Staten Island, because we've shown that there was a change. But like you said, no New York ones, no CNBCs, not the New York Post. It was picked up nowhere. You know? By that time that we had that protest, I think that might have been the third protest, right? Yeah. Third protest, 
largest protest in Staten Island history of 2,000 peoples, there was not a single elected official there. Not a single one, right? And that's why it's so important, you know, the young leaders of Staten Island, shout out to them. That's going to be a big part of moving forward. There's a new generation, there's a new Staten Island that is sick of all the bullshit. They're sick of having these conversations. They're sick of being demonized. They're sick of watching people being demonized. And I think a lot of people just want to see what's done right so we can move back to regular life, whatever that may be. The way to keep this moving forward is by doing exactly that, by continuing to move forward, um, continuing to have these conversations, giving people a chance to kind of change the narrative. You know, you got these young groups that are putting on events for the community. I myself, just my me and one of my teams, changing the narrative. Uh, we just put together a poetry slam, and it was amazing. The whole point of the, the poetry slam was, you know, we've done the marching, we've done the kicking, the screaming. I want to give people a chance to kind of decompress, right? Have a good time, but at the same time, be able to express yourself. You know, it was about healing, being able to tell your story without, you know, a thousand people around, without this anger and this love. Leave the anger at the door, come in and spill your heart out. And it was great. So that's how we're going to keep this narrative going having conversations, having gatherings, having continuing these protests, and just keeping up the fight. So don't be afraid to have those hard conversations. Don't be afraid to call people out on their bullshit. You know, people talk about uh, millennials. You know, millennials are crybabies. Millennials are, you know, they're always whining. But you know why that is? Because millennials think it's cool to mind your own goddamn business, right? <laughs> if someone has a sexual preference, why the hell does that matter to you? If someone's skin is different, why the hell does that matter to you, you know? And what our generation has done is We've called people out, and they say it's nagging, they say it's complaining. No, you're calling people on their shit. In this age of the millennials, people are calling people out on their shit, and look how that movement took off. Look how much differently the world is now, how many pieces off the board. It's still a crazy place, but calling people out on their shit is the gift that our generation was given. So don't let people tell you, you know, you're crybabies and you're all this, you know. This, this is the same generation who turned blind eyes, you know. When people were making those jokes that weren't that funny, when people were saying those things that were really rude, they turned their eye. They kind of brushed it off, and that's why we have this culture of people thinking they can just do and say whatever they want. A part of America's greatest freedom is, you know, the freedom of speech. But you gotta take the heat that comes with that. So by all means, if you wanna, if you wanna talk, talk. But my man's is going to have a camera. We're going to make sure you YouTube by the morning. So, yeah. <laughs> Follow that gut feeling. You know, we don't got to wait till tomorrow. We don't got to wait till next week. We can do something right now. And I believe me and you caught the same feeling, which pushed us into the places that we are. So I, I'm so glad you were there, man, for real. And I, I, I don't know how, but this is going to trickle on into something even greater afterwards. So I'll be excited when that comes to Perfect Rebel, it's Donovan. He's the leader that Staten Island needs right now. The leader I need. And so I'm gonna have his back, whatever he's got in store for us next. Whatever I create going forward, 
I can't not address whatever's going on. I've been consciously held to that ever since that literature of genocide class I took. At some point in the semester, we talked about this infamous quote by the social critic and philosopher Theodore Adorno when he said, to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. I've spent a lot of time, frankly, too much time, thinking about what he meant by that exactly. The quote is often taken out of context, but I'll be honest, Adorno is a capital D dense writer. Like, first you've got neutron stars, then you got your black holes, and then finally, there's Adorno. So even in the broader context that he wrote it in, it's not super obvious, and especially not to a dummy like me, what he was getting at. But this much, I think, is clear. First, Adorno wasn't just dunking on poets or poetry as an art form. There were poets within Auschwitz, such as Dr. Ruth Kluger, and poets that survived and continued to write poetry afterwards. He wasn't discrediting them or their work. Instead, he was addressing our culture, local, federal, global, and how it is one that is still capable of committing genocide. While we still have the means to carry that out, any and all facets of our society are connected through rotted roots and therefore complicit to that end, or, you know, the end. The only way to change our culture is to skirt outside it, shocking others out of their complacency and leisure. Sometimes literally. I mean, why do you think I chose a song that starts like this as my theme? Put another way, if what you create does not address the status quo, if it does not challenge the recipients of that art, then you're a contributor to barbarism. There is no nuance or in-between. This is black and white life or death. I'm writing and recording this in the midst of the pandemic, still. But when we return to quote-unquote normal life, whatever the fuck that's gonna mean, the spaces we occupy can't only offer us a distracting reprieve from culture's daily onslaught. We cannot be hypnotized into a lull. The places we occupy must be spaces to question, expand, develop. Anyway, that's what I think Adorno was getting at. I could be wrong. And Lord knows I haven't always lived up to that either. If I ever have with any of my writing or music or whatever. Or even this. Something feels off about roping people into that first episode with a funny anecdote that promises some kind of audio adventure and then getting real and serious out of nowhere. But really, it was the best way I saw to start so that eventually I'd get here. Regardless, every time I've stumbled and not lived up to Adorno's ideal feels, at least in retrospect, like a failure. To my black friends, family, and the black community. I'm trying to stay committed to do better and take the next steps towards reform and restructure, but it's hard. And I don't say that as an excuse, just an acknowledgement. I posed this question to Sarah, if she thought artists have a responsibility to be committed to a goal like that, if they should shoulder that burden. Here's what she said. Do we have a responsibility? That's a tough one. I think ultimately the answer is yes. 
you know, this idea of like when you're given a talent or a platform, I do think you have a responsibility to at least try to be good. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> that being said, um, I do think it's telling of our times and it's just a little bit of a shame that many people are not doing just what they want to do. You know, like I would love to see just like the freedom, um, for artists to like, just draw what they want to draw. I actually feel it's become a little bit impossible to just make work. And I, I think that's kind of a shame, especially for people who are younger. Mm -hmm. um, but I do feel that there just, there just is some responsibility to, to, to do the best you can and, you know, watch out for yourself as well. But I, I do think you have to be, you have to be good. <laughs> right? <laughs> you should try to be a good person. Yeah. Yeah. A responsibility to be good. Also, again, go buy Sarah's new book, Fangs. It's out now. Later in the day after I talked to Alex, she still couldn't think of the most rebellious thing she'd ever done. But she sent me this text. Anyway, I think one of the most rebellious things one can do is tell the truth. And speak from the heart. Sussing all this out doesn't seem too hard. Tell the truth speak from the heart, be good. That might not have the density of Adorno, but I'd wager there's still a lot of weight to those words. Tell the truth, speak from the heart, be good. That I can do. That's all I've got. Actually, I had a different ending plan, but I think I've said more than enough. My football coaches always talked about leaving it all on the field. If coach ever hears this, I hope he's proud of my hustle. I'll admit that I'm not scared of how this will all be received, but... Actually, fuck it. <laughs> yes, I am. I don't want to mess up and do a big thing badly. I mean, I'm sure my friends will listen and my parents for sure. And even if it's bad and they hated it, they'll lie to me and tell me it was good and they liked it. But my extended family and strangers, I don't know. <laughs> at least I can rest easy knowing the ones I want to hear it the most won't. And that's fine. I've not had any grand delusions that my dumb podcast will change the world or move the needle. I don't think it's going to change anything. Not Staten Island, not Tottenville. If anything, I'm about to get run out of town. Plus, now I have the added bonus of knowing that everybody in town is fucking strapped, so that's fun. But you know what they say, no one can be a prophet in their own country. I suppose I could be in worse company than, you know, the Lord. But seriously, I don't even think I feel like doing all this has changed me. I don't know. I thought it might. Not much is different, though. I don't feel any different. There's been no epiphanies along the way, no moments of cloud-breaking clarity. For example, I wondered if this would help grant me the insight into whether I should continue to live on Staten Island and be the change in Tottenville, or finally move to Jersey or Brooklyn or anywhere else. I don't know. I've got nothing. 
In fact, if anything, I'm more confused now than when I started. So really, in a lot of ways, this has all been a big mistake. I feel like I've been living outside of life. Like, I know it's there. I know it's happening. But I'm not getting the full ride. Imagine reading the transcript of a slam poetry event instead of, you know, being there. That's what it's like. That's what I've been feeling. Maybe I'm just feeling this way because this has been what I've worked on all quarantine. I'm past the point of wondering if the quarantine will do damage to me. Now, it's just a matter of how much damage it's going to do. Like when you watch a TV show and a crew has to go shut off a valve someplace, but they know going in they're going to get showered with radiation. I'm racing against a clock to my own personal erosion. Like, this whole pandemic, I felt like I haven't been the comfort to my friends I used to be. And I wish I could be. Being there for them was a way of aiding myself. That's when I was my best self, and so I haven't been my best self for many, many months. And let's be real for a moment. Unable to access my friends or any of my normal routines, I've just been sitting here, writing. Writing has been my retreat. Because if I'm not writing, then I don't know. I'm just time traveling to the future inside a cardboard box that's been taped shut from the outside. But at least packed away with me is a word processor, so let's write and write and write. Right? When I've needed a retreat from writing, what did I have? Well, I started with walks to the South Pole to check for stickers. But before long, I knew every crack in the sidewalk. I knew the name of every blade of grass at the park. So... Yeah, I'm not starting to lose it. I've lost it. And sometimes I couldn't get away. As a result, working on this has been, at times, downright unhealthy for me. Forget the late nights staying up way past my bedtime to jot down stupid ideas or hit the next thousand word benchmark. I fell into all my worst traps. I'm so predictable with my self-sabotage, it hurts. Like, the worst thing I could do for my well-being was put a deadline on this, which of course I did and of course I missed. I also felt like maybe, just maybe, if this was good enough, I'd impress the one person I want to impress the most, and I know I won't. I stopped writing for two weeks in August because I was so worried that I'd been portraying not me, but a caricature of myself. I will record this and edit myself, but I don't ever speak so clear or without long breaks or a slight stutter. I can't come up with anything cohesive off the cuff because my best thoughts take at least three days in the hopper before they're ready for anything. So you're not hearing me, but a character of me. And I'm so uncomfortable with that that I'll doubt I'll ever indulge in writing reflective, pseudo-documentary, interviewish type non-fiction memoir bullshit ever again. Like, if I've got to be fake, I might as well lean into it. That said, I'm a never-say-never type. And I mean, have I said all I needed to say? For one thing, I would like for you to hear from someone that can tell the story of Sandy Ground. Of its past and of its future. That's something I'd like to put together. And hell, this miniseries was supposed to be five episodes originally. I cut it down to three, and it's still hours and hours long. But I have those other scripts written, and the interviews recorded, so why not? 
And the story of the march, that wasn't an ending. That was the start of something. And let me tell you, a lot has happened since then that's definitely worth covering. I'm not going to make a decision now, though. It'd be too much like going to the grocery store when you're hungry. Or rather, I guess, the opposite. Like, I don't want to make a choice to do more work while I'm exhausted. After this goes out, I'm taking a nice, long break. I'm going to work on some other stuff. Like, at work, I'm the club advisor for the Student Technology Association. Really, we're the podcast club. People have been asking why I'm making this, and I've been pretending to be joking when I say that the reason I create anything is to get people to like me. But the most legitimate answer, truly, is that I want to show the kids in the club that the way you make a podcast is really like so much else in life. You just wing it, and one day you decide you've done enough. And I mean, working on this has been tough, but I love having worked on it, if that makes sense. And I'm sad to see it go in a weird way. If I try and listen to it once it's out, that would be a move most impolitic. I'm not going to be able to enjoy this ever again once it's published. I'll only hear the mistakes and the doubts and where I went too far and didn't go far enough and the points where I settled and the bits I want to change and on and on and on. But until then, as I speak these words, I at least still have this episode to finish. All that being said, if there's anything from this that's lasting, I don't know. I mean, I don't concern myself with legacy too much. I'll be too dead to enjoy it if it's good, and thankfully, away if it isn't. But the now is important. Like, right now. The middle of things. The medium run. Like that scene from Spaceballs. What the hell am I looking at? When does this happen in the movie? Now. You're looking at now, sir. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened to then? We passed then. When? Just now. We're at now now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now. What I mean is this. I started calling the show Hail Mary Digital, which is a bad name that sounds religious, and it's about football, but it's not about football, and it has a terrible acronym, but I started calling it that because that's how I thought of that first episode. The impossibility of crossing paths with Sarah again and how that was hopefully a compelling narrative under the Aristotelian laws of story. But like I said, life isn't a story. Stories are stories, and life is life. But that doesn't mean I don't try and blur the lines. So much of what we do is story, and so much of those stories are comfort to us, right? They feel like home, whether it's a book or a TV show or a podcast. And everything's impossible until one day it isn't. So I'm going to try and live that life, the life worthy of a good story. And in that sense, I'm sure, like I said, that some of my friends and family will listen to this. But I'm also sure that there'll be people I don't know, people I'll never know, that will listen to this too. Some way, somehow, and against all the odds, this show found its way to you. I know it's going to happen, and so what I want you to know is this. If you're listening, you've 
just received my note. A new note. And you didn't know it at the time, but you're with me now. I can feel you here with me in my room as I type these words on September 16th at 9.40 p.m. You're with me as I say these words at 10.32 p.m. on December 5th. You'll be with me when I listen back and cringe at the sound of my own voice when I edit this together, and you'll be there with me when I hit the button to publish. And wherever you are, whenever you are, I'm there with you too. So come to think of it, the whole show is the digital Hail Mary, isn't it? So touchdown, we did it. Game over. And you know what? That might not be much, but if nothing else, it's something. That's all. Digital by Brian Buchanan. Mixed by Nick Pittman and mastered by Ian Pritchard. Special thanks to Aaron Janicek, Steve Zimmer, Jason Roshback, Alex Cadwell, Brian McCann, Angelica Bomundo, Cole Rice, Stephen Backus, and me, Kayla Elder. Shout out to Sarah Anderson and Casper Turkile. Intro and outro music by On Pink. Additional music provided by Stockholm Blush, Collector Emitter, Chronophile, Sean Gold, Lincoln Mayorga, Mike Maldarelli, Joe Ippolito, Ross Fish, and Curious Volume. Scheherazade by Rimsky Korsakov was performed by David Nolan, Enrique Batiz, and the Philharmonia Orchestra, and was provided courtesy of Naxos of America Incorporated. Up She Rises and Classic Battle by Sam Spence were provided courtesy of APM Music. Promotional material provided by Marissa Soto. Additional material provided by James Yarazinski and Marquise Pickering. For more information, please check out our website at brianbuchanan57.com. That's Brian with an I, Buchanan like the president, and 57 like the ketchup bottle. Hail Mary Digital is a co-production between Fat Jewel and Star Command Audio Solutions. Later, stranger. Stranger.